ahead in your Bible, or if you're using an app, turn to Esther 8. I've got some ground to cover this morning, so I'm going to jump in. And if you don't have anything with you, we have free Bibles for you out in the foyer, but we're also going to throw it up on the screen too. While you're turning there, if you're a friend of mine, have been around me for a while, you know that YouTube is one of my guilty pleasures. I love YouTube. It's probably behind email, behind my inbox and my calendar, maybe the third most used app on my phone, making phone calls, like literal calls, probably like number nine (laughs) on what I really do with my smartphone. But I love YouTube, and sometimes I catch myself drawn to those brainless moments where I get to watch the instant karma videos, right? Maybe you're like me. If you don't If you don't know what an instant karma video is, it is a video or most of the time a compilation of videos where somebody is doing something stupid or ill-advised and immediately getting what they deserve, like immediately right on the spot. I love what it does to my heart. I feel like the heavens come down and the universe is balanced for a moment, right? So if you've never been to it, you probably want to check one out later on because it'll show the guy who cuts somebody off only to realize that it was an undercover squad car and they flip the lights on and pull them over. That's right. Doesn't it feel good just hearing that? You didn't even have to see it, did you? Or it's the guy who's drunk and flirts inappropriately with the woman at the bar just to find out that she's a black belt in jiu-jitsu, puts him on the mat real quick like that. Or it's the guy who messes with the dog over and over again until he loses a finger. Instant karma, right? Or it's the guy who steals packages off the front porch and then he gets sprayed with glitter and fart spray, right? The, <laughs> did you notice all of those were guys? It's funny because whenever I'm watching that, my wife comes behind me, she says, no women involved in any of this, if you've noticed that. It's always guys doing stuff like that. Man, I love these videos. I love them. And I don't think I'm alone because as of this morning, just the top five most visited instant karma videos have been hit just in the last few months over 100 million times. That is a lot of clicks. And this is why. This is why. Because we love punishment delivered to the right people at the right time. It just, it does something to all of us, I think, right? The right people get with the right outcome. It feels like an unbalanced equation is finally balanced. But occasionally, the opposite happens inside of us. Whenever we see a news headline of something that shows justice being dropped, where punishment is not served the way it needs to be served, right? I think of three years ago, the thing that really hit the headlines for a good solid few months was the story, see if I get his name right. Yeah, Brock Turner. He was a scholarship swimmer at Stanford, um, and he had sexually assaulted a young woman when she was drunk went to court for it, found guilty, but that wasn't the controversy as much as how it was handled. The national discussion was around the fact that he was handled with kid gloves, with deep consideration and concern, and then she was just kind of victimized all over again by not being handled that way. In fact, he got a slap on the wrist. If you go back and you look, or maybe some of you even remember it, it, he didn't really get a very much of a punishment at all. It was such a national outrage that the populace was calling for an impeachment of the judge because across all demographics, across all ideologies, everyone pretty much seemed to agree that justice was dropped. Why? Because there was a lack of punishment. A lack of punishment. And where there's a lack of punishment, there's a lack of love for the victim, and that means there's also a lack of justice. 
See, we respond this way because it's the way we're designed to respond. We've been created and designed to revolt most where justice is honored the least. And when justice prevails, it's because punishment was rightly delivered. You were created to hunger for this. You were actually created to demand this kind of justice and love and even punishment for the right people at the right time. It's why the, it's why the headlines hurt to read sometimes. And it's why we click on dumb videos and watch the instant karma, right? Now, as a gospel-formed church, which we are, as a gospel-formed and a gospel-shaped church, we tell and we enjoy the story of Jesus as often as we can. It's what everything we do rotates and orbits around. We love and enjoy the story of Jesus. We love the story of love. We love and enjoy the story of justice and punishment. And I know that sounds odd. I know it sounds odd coming out of my mouth into your ears, but the gospel story that we love and we are so passionate about has wrath as a primary character in it. It just does. It's true. Right? You know, we're in a, just a quick little recap because we're in the twilight of this story on Esther. We're in the eighth chapter, and we're probably going to finish it next week. But resolution is starting to happen. We're starting to see it. It hasn't totally come yet, but it's dawning, Right? Just to kind of remind you of who Esther was, she was plucked out of her home when she was just a young girl, a young Jewish girl. She was thrown into this process and this pipeline called a Persian harem. She comes out the other end, is this commanding queen. And we've been able to kind of watch her over the last seven chapters evolve a little bit. As a naive girl, making some missteps here and there, all the way to a vessel in God's hand for the deliverance of God's people. And then we've seen the same evolution of Mordecai. Mordecai is her cousin, but kind of daddish as well because he helped raise her. But we've seen him evolve as well, right? I mean, this is a guy that did something very noble for the king, was totally forgotten, for years forgotten about this, right? And then justice came later on, and he was elevated to a heightened position. This is a guy that faced death and royalty in a very quick amount of time. So we've seen his life change. And in all of this, this whole story, God has been nowhere, not even mentioned, not mentioned once in this story, but he's absolutely everywhere at the very same time. Just as Jake was saying, he's providentially involved in all the affairs, even down to the detail. God is involved. He's in behind every motive of the heart, behind every molecule, behind every moment. God is orchestrating, behind designing everything. And this is why we love this story so much. I mean, just the way that God decided to tell this story to us. It resonates with us. It's our everyday. It's how we live on the street. I mean, isn't that how Tuesday feels? God is nowhere, right? God's absolutely nowhere. But then we know he's everywhere at the same time. It's just normal for us. So even in the resolution of this story, we're going to see this everywhere, nowhere dynamic Heads up, we're going to be dealing with some hard truths today that might stretch some, will stretch you. It will stretch you. Today is hard, and that is for very good reason, because it deals with wrath and punishment. But hear me now, part of our promise to you is a pastoral team. Part of our agreement, our covenant, is to not avoid passages like this. In fact, it's to just do an honorable job with the whole counsel of the Bible. Today is going to be one of those days. But I think it will be helpful for you. 
I think this passage might shed some light on other Old Testament passages that have probably been creating some problems in your heart, right? Bothering you, making you possibly question even the very character of God. So let's look at Esther 8. This is the word of the Lord for us. It's going to help us see Jesus much more clearly than we see him already. I'm going to read a little bit, and then we're going to pause, and I'm going to explain what's going on. But Esther 8, verse 1. On that day, which day? The day that Haman was killed. Okay, on that day. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther, the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. <clears throat> this is what's happening, right? I mean, first of all, morality and ethics, they still have no place in this king's decision-making process. He is still making decisions based on what pleases him the most, right? And you can tell whenever he realizes that he is not pleasing Esther with his first attempt to make her happy, he just basically tells her and Mordecai, just here, here's my ring, my signet ring. You just go off and do whatever you want to do. Just go off whatever makes you happy. This is the kind of leader he is. He just wants it off of his plate. Now here's the situation. The king cannot undo that first edict, that first decree that was sent out to destroy all the Jews across the known world. He couldn't undo it. That was the thing with edicts back then. They couldn't be revoked. They were irrevocable. I know it sounds goofy, right? I mean, you just think, why doesn't someone just say, hey, that last law we just passed? Yeah, about that. We're just going to cancel it. It was a bad idea. Don't know what we were thinking. Just delete. They just didn't do that back then, right? So the king is reminding them of that. Edict number one, it's in the books. It's fixed. So they do the next best thing by building edict number two, which is going to conflict with it. It's going to contradict. And that one is also irrevocable. Two irrevocable decrees moving side by side for the same date, right? That's what's going on. Let's look at verse 9. Verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials in the provinces from India to Ethiopia. 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language. 
and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And on one day throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, And in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the people of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Okay. So very literally, the horses are off. May the best edict win. I mean, even the language of this second edict, it mirrors and mimics the first one. That's on purpose. What they're trying to do is they're trying to show that the second edict, it's just as heavy and it's just as valuable and just as standing and irrevocable as the first one with one difference. The Jews were only allowed to defend themselves, not initiate the attack. That's what's going on here. Now just, just consider this for a moment. In a few months after these writings, after the horses leave, a few months later, right, whoever wanted to attack a Jewish family or person or business and kill them and take everything they wanted, they would be allowed to do it under the cover of law. That would be a legal thing to do. That's what's happening. Can you imagine the social climate? How do you live under that? How do you operate under that? I mean, just put yourself in their shoes. Let's pretend for a moment that a law was passed, and on Jan 1 of 2020, it was passed in the land that if you wanted to, you could attack kill, destroy, and plunder anyone in America whose last name started with an S, a G, or a T. Or, or you have red hair. If you have red hair, your last name starts with an S, a G, or a T, you, you're, up for, you're up for grabs. I mean, someone could come and take your family, murder them, take all of your stuff. What would that do between now and January 1? How would you live under that? How would that change the way you woke up and handled your every day? How would that alter just the way you thought? I mean, there would be chaos. If, if your last name started with S or G or T or if you had red hair, you probably see people casing your home, preparing for January 1, stalking you on Facebook, right? Trying to assess how much money you had because they're already spending your money in their mind. That's what we've got. How else could you, I mean, how could you live under that? But then let's pretend that maybe in a month, a second law is passed, which says, hey, 
New law, new law. If your last name starts with S, G, or a T, or you have red hair, right? Then you can defend yourself against anyone coming to get your stuff. And you could kill them and their families, right? What do you think would happen on January 1? Would people still attack? Oh, you bet. You bet people would still attack under the cover of law. They'd take their chance. They might not win, but it wouldn't be a crime. It's legal. This is what's going on. See how goofy that is? How scary that is? Both edicts colliding. The Jews are spread over 127 provinces, and they were allowed to defend themselves, even killing those related to the attackers. This was not just self-defense. Nuh-uh. Not just self-defense. It's not a free pass to slaughter whoever they wanted to, but it is restrained retribution. That's what the verb means in that 13th verse. That's what they had to be prepared for. Restrained, vengeful retribution. Quick question. Does anyone else in the room struggle with that? I mean, what is your gut's reaction when you hear something like that? This command to wipe out man, woman, and toddler. <laughs> does it bother you? Does it, does it sound like Jesus? Meek and humble and mild. Does it sound like him? In other words, is Mordecai right in issuing this edict where families, kids, would be killed? Is he right? Listen, if you're going to be a a Christian, a disciple, it's upon you to be a diligent and conscientious reader of the Bible. And that means asking hard questions. Very hard questions. You're going to want to read the Bible with your eyes open. Okay? Don't take what you hear blindly. Even what I say. Even the books you spend money on. Check it. Pick up the Bible and check it. Measure it to see if it's right. And ask really hard questions. Because after all, Knoxville is. Your neighbors are. I think some of you are, right? There are also other passages in the Old Testament where God commands the total destruction of a place. You'll see them in Joshua probably most often. Man, woman, ox, donkey, child, right? How have you processed that? Growing up as maybe a kid in the church reading that. Maybe it's just a, a young Christian. You, you kind of trip over something like that in your, your Bible reading time. How do you deal with that? Is God being a jerk? Does he have an anger problem? Have we finally found a flaw in God's character? You know, I'll never forget, in 2007, I was in our second church plant in Tampa Bay, and on Thursdays and Fridays, I would be with two other pastors, and we would knock on doors. We would knock on doors and tell them that there was a church down the street. We would love to have them as a guest. We would knock on doors and tell them about Jesus, right? Not, capital N, not the most effective way to reach a city. But we didn't know what to do. We didn't have any money. That's just what we did. We started. Now, here's the thing. We did this for two and a half years. We knocked on over 20,000 doors. We did the math on it once, right? It's a lot of doors, right? I don't remember half of those people. I don't remember most of those people. I, I remember a couple. I was attacked a couple times. I remember them. <laughs> I was trying to get away from the house. But one couple came out, and they were about 30 years older than me. And they were retired from the ministry. Not retired because they were of that age, and it was just time to retire. Retired because they broke up with God. Done with God. You see, while they were in the ministry, they had a son that they loved and they cherished, and this son died from something tragic. 
And they didn't just go into an emotional tailspin. They went into a spiritual tailspin into where they just could not, they could not love and enjoy a God that would do something like that to their son. And then I come and knock on their door and tell them the good news of Jesus. Okay? So they show me this passage. And they show me other passages in Joshua that rhyme with this one and look like this one. And they say, what kind of God would do something like that? What kind of God? I don't think I could serve a God like that. Luke, what do you think? Can you serve a God like that? I didn't know how to engage this broken man. I didn't know what to say. It's honest questions, valid even. What do you do with this? No, we have to talk about this as a church that's going to build itself on honesty. And I think to truly understand what Mordecai is doing with this second decree is to put it in its proper context. This edict is, in fact, a form of what is called holy war. It's not a phrase we use very much anymore, right? I mean, you'll hear a terrorist use it, or when people are referring to terrorism, they'll use the phrase holy war. But it's good to know that Haman that first decree to wipe out all the Jews, that was not some personal bub or issue that he had with Mordecai. That was actually the latest episode and expression of this age-old hatred between the Amalekites and the Jews. Right? If you don't know this, maybe you're just you're growing in the Bible, Amalek or the, the Amalekites, they're the original archenemy of the Jews, the original OG when it comes to those who hated the Jews. All right? It's Amalek. They picked the fight, they threw the first punch, really. They picked the fight when Israel was still wet from crossing the Red Sea under Moses. And God said at that time he would erase even their memory from the earth. That's another way of saying that there will be a complete destruction. Total and complete, right? This is how it says it in Exodus 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, right? This is happening. This is, this is an age-old war. Haman was an Amalekite. Mordecai was a Jew. There was a holy war. Holy war between God and Amalek. Not really the Jews and Amalek at this point, but God and Amalek. Because later on, we're going to see King Saul finds himself fighting the same people. It says this in 1 Samuel 15. God speaking, saying, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. It's very complete. It's very thorough. Sounds a little bit like the edicts we're looking at today. That's on purpose. It's not an accident. Today's edict, the second decree, is part of this same ongoing holy war between God and Amalek. Okay? By the way, what is holy war? It's probably important to define that. Very simply, it's God's war against evil. God's battle against sin and evil. That's all it is. So when the Israelites are tromping through Canaan, and you'll catch this if you read the book of Joshua. It's a fantastic read if you haven't read it. When the Israelites are moving through the land, they would be commanded to destroy entire cities. This is God's war against evil right? And his people, the Israelites, were the agents of war. You see, Israel is a sort of like a flood or fire and brimstone, right? Those were used as agents of God cleansing evil away, 
That's what you would see whenever you'd see those things, right? Fire would cleanse Sodom and Gomorrah away. The flood would cleanse creation and all the evil away. And in those cases in creation, when those agents of destruction were used, people weren't destroyed because they were at the wrong place at the wrong time. That's not why that happened. It's because they were sinners full of evil and steadfastly opposed to God. The sentence for that is death. That's the sentence. Regardless of their nationality, the sentence for that is death. So holy war is not Israel against everybody else. It's God against evil. It's God against evil. Now sometimes Israel was the agent of that wrath. Israel would have been the flood or the fire, right? Sometimes. And then sometimes Israel would receive that wrath because they were the ones that were in open rebellion. That's why they were exiled, just to make sense of why that was the case. Here's good news, though. God does not carry this out impatiently, but he's very patient and he's very slow. He does not throw tantrums. We see this in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then Peter kind of reprises that later on, and he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And this is exactly what we see, even in the earlier stories. I mean, certainly a flood came and wiped out all of the evil, all of creation, but he did grab Noah and his family. And certainly fire and brimstone did rain down on two wicked cities, but he did rescue Lot and his family. You know, to borrow from an old Scottish preacher, for the longest time, God shows grace as if he does not know how to show wrath. But when the fullness of time comes, he shows wrath as if he does not know how to show mercy. Here's the big point. God is at war with evil. Here's the big question. Is there a holy war today? In 2019? The answer is yes and no. The answer is it depends, okay? I mean, if we're talking about what we see in Esther, then no, there's no holy war, which is why you witness Jesus telling you and me to love our enemies. Or you'll catch him in the Gospels kind of getting John and James to tap the brakes a little bit when they want to call fire down on a city full of jerks that didn't handle them just right. It's different, right? We do see that. The church is not called into a jihad, where we convert people by the edge of the sword. And it, it, we don't do this not because it's just an old-fashioned thing or we're mature now or we're a modern people or we're a civil people now. We don't operate in holy war today because God's battle against sin was finished with Jesus. God's holy war found its last episode in Jesus, who is a better Esther who threw himself at the feet of a better king, not for his own concern, but for the people around him. That's why that's in the Bible. This is the striking contrast. I mean, if you look back at last week, what do we see? We see Haman throw himself at Esther's feet. He's not concerned for anyone but himself. Don't kill me. Please don't kill me. That's all he's thinking. Here, we see Esther throw herself at the feet of the king, and she's not concerned about herself at all. She's concerned about the people around her. That is a picture of a heavier moment that you and I celebrate in the gospel, right? Where our hero places himself before the better father and advocates for us, rescuing us from destruction. Because there was an edict, a decree, 
made against you and made against me way back in the garden. Decree number one, that death would find you and death would find me, right? Because we're full of evil. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's just how we come from the factory. We come from the factory broken, right? So in Genesis, God pronounced a sentence of death, not just over sin, but over Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. That's what we see, right? People. And that's why you've been to funerals and why you'll have one one day. It's because of decree one, edict one, death finds sinners. Now, God could have just stopped there. Or he could have just started everything over like an Etch-A-Sketch, just kind of shook it and just started it all over because we were never going to meet that standard. But instead, he issues a second edict, a counter-edict, another decree to redeem us out of sin into righteousness and life, delivering us from destruction. In the gospel, the story of God for mankind through the person of Jesus, Jesus himself finishes the holy war. God's battle against sin finally satisfied. That's why there's no holy war like that anymore. Now, why am I spending time on this, right? Because if you don't look at holy war or edicts like this in the shadow of the cross where Jesus is finishing that battle for his people, you are always going to be stuck on passages like this. Always stuck. It just won't make sense. You'll read the Bible with like squinted eyes, hoping that your neighbors don't see the thing that you really don't want them to ask you the question about. And certainly you've already grown uncomfortable with passages like that, where it looks like God's losing his cool, where it looks like his character is totally flawed. Friends, listen, our, our job, our job, our goal, is not to bring an incomplete gospel to the city, hoping that they never find these passages. My goal is not to preach the gospel with my fingers crossed. Right? God's war against evil is not just a part of a story, it's a part of God's good story how he fights against evil, right? You know what's interesting? The only nations that subscribe to holy war today are the ones that reject Jesus, the ones that deny Jesus, right? And if you remove the gospel from history, then you're left with a holy war where people are still fighting people in the name of whatever God they choose, and that's always gonna be happening, right? But our gospel story is a story of God delivering wrath and receiving wrath, not just delivering, but receiving it. This is what Tremper Longman says it much better than I do. He says, the God of battle carries sin and suffering with his own groans. And finally, on the cross, draws his own sovereign wrath down upon himself. Right? This might unsettle you. That's understandable. It's totally normal if that unsettles you. In fact, if you look back at the history of the church, the earliest heresies you see are going to be from unsettled people that don't know what to do with this God of the Old Testament. So what they've tried to do is cut him in half. Make two gods, a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament, right? So we still do it today, right? The Old Testament God, the old, angry, starched, Caucasian, 1950s fundamentalist, homophobe version God, Old Testament, right? Then we've got the New Testament God, very passive, sin-tolerant, soft, no sword in his hand, very, very deep Lady Gaga version, right? Both of those are very incorrect. We could be just as heretical today as they were back in 120 AD, right? But you don't have to do this. You don't have to split God into two. You wanna know why? Because every single person in this city and every single person in this room in their very, very core understands that there has to be a marriage between justice, punishment, 
and love. They all understand it. Here's proof. Say your kid was kidnapped and never found again. But they did find the guy who did it. He goes to court, he's found guilty, and they give him six months probation. Oh, and by the way, they were really super and overly concerned about how his feelings were throughout the whole trial. Not yours, not your family's, but the kidnappers. What would you do? You'd be sick. You'd revolt, and you should. Why? Why? Because justice wasn't served. It was dropped. No love was shown. Why? No punishment was delivered. No punishment was delivered. That's why. You see, society understands this. That's why you don't have to split God into multiple personalities when you preach the gospel. That's why the cross is so spectacular. It's because it's on the cross that you see perfect love, totally satisfied, justice, satisfied, wrath, satisfied. All three, perfect, ferocious, and simultaneous. Big point. God is at war with evil. The only holy war we are in today is not against people. It's against the sin that is inside of us, and it's against the sin that's wrecking our neighbors. But it's not against people. Listen, you are not at war with the millennials. As much as some of you want to be, you're not. Not at war with Democrats either. Not at war with Republicans or communists. We're not at a holy war with Muslims. You're not even at war with people that are at war with you. Not. You're not God's agent of wrath or cleansing or punishment. You are the beneficiaries of a new decree, of a new edict. And the cross, the bloody cross, was God's agent of delivering justice, love, and wrath. And wrath. So how do we war today? What does our fight look like today? I think this is what Paul is doing. He leans into this a little bit in Ephesians 6, where he talks about dressing ourselves in an armor so that we can stand against an evil one. And he says, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, people. We don't wrestle against people, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Our battle, our battle in war is with the enemy's strategies and his cosmic powers. It's not with people, right? Where has this been tough for you? The war with people. How hard has it been for you to love your neighbor when you have a very clear view of their sin, especially when their sin is hurting you. How are you doing with that? And can you see that you struggle with the same thing that they struggle with? Boy, that's so key. I mean, are you not gay? Okay, you're not gay. But do you understand what sexual temptation is? Sure. Are you an opioid addict? Probably not. But you understand the temptation to escape the comfort, don't you? Absolutely. An adulterer? A thief? Maybe not. But you understand what rumbles around in the depth of the soul of one who is. You understand that. I think our problem, your problem, my problem, with my sin, needs to be there before I, I have a problem with the sin in others. And I need to see them as coming from the same thing. I think, I think what we often hear is that we need to love the sinner and hate the sin. Love the sinner, hate the sin. That's, that's the catchy little slogan we hear all the time, right? It, by the way, that's not in your Bible. Don't even bother looking it up. 
right? Love the sinner, hate the sin. That came from Gandhi in 1929, just so you know where that came from. Be, listen, be careful anytime you hear giant sweeping doctrine compressed into a little one-liner. <laughs> I'm not saying it can't happen. Solomon did a very good job in Proverbs. It can happen. I'm just saying be careful, right? Be careful with that. I think we usually hear this cliche when discussing homosexuality or gay marriage, which is why you're hearing it more and more often now. I'm not so sure how helpful the phrase is anymore, especially since it's probably more of a half-truth than it is a full truth. I mean, ask somebody who is gay, ask somebody who is addicted how it makes them feel when they hear you say, I love you, but I hate your life. I love you, but please leave your baggage at the door. I love you, but I have to tolerate you while I hold my nose. I love you, but barely love you. Friends, listen, I hate sin. I hate what it does to me. I hate what it does to my family. I hate what it does to creation. I hate what it did to my hero on the cross. And I love people. What if we were known as a church who hated the sin in ourselves as much as we hated the sin in our neighbor? And what if we came from the flank of, yeah, you've got active sin in your life that you've been struggling with, fighting, dealing with, and I'm standing in the same line you are, struggling with the same thing. I've got issues too, and I've got good news as well. What if we were known as a people who celebrated God's redemption for us, for us, for you and me, not just dirty people, not celebrated what the gospel does for, for the people in the smoking sections this morning, but for you and me, how it frees us. What if we were known as a people before a God who hates and loves at the same time? No split personality. You see, here's the problem with God hating sins but loving the sinners. It's not totally true. It's not 100% true. Psalm 5 says this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. That's in your Bible. Psalm 11, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God does hold a hatred for sinners. His wrath is real. It's not something, his wrath, is not something he pours out on those he approves of. And it's not sin that suffers in hell. That's illogical. It's sinners that suffer in hell. See, there is no such thing as a sin apart from the human heart. The sin does not just hang out as an abstract in the ether. It's nothing if it's not attached to the human heart. This is tough. Because we want it to be abstract. We want God to destroy sin, not the person. We want sin to be treated as a line item apart from humanity. And Gandhi doesn't believe anything that I'm saying, which is why he could so casually say, hate the sin but love the sinner. Friends, listen, you can hate this sermon. You can never show up again. That might happen, but you still have to deal with these passages. And let me tell you what you have to reckon with as well. It's going to be the gospel. And the gospel makes no sense without punishment and wrath. It makes zero sense, Right? Because here's the gospel paradox. God hates and loves at the same time. He hates ferociously and he loves ferociously. For God so loved the world that he hates. He hates sin. For God so loved the world that he punishes sin. For God so loved the world that he pours wrath out until there is none left to pour. That's amazing to me. 
that God loves this corrupt and cracked and damned world so much, so much. And he hates sin so much that he came himself and took his own wrath upon his own shoulders. That's ferocious love and ferocious hate at the same time. I told you this was going to be a tough passage. I mean, this is definitely not a Mother's Day sermon, all right? But the truth, and it begs me, I think it begs all of us to be awestruck and consider how much God loves and how much God hates. Because in our story, our new decree, our new edict, enemies are made into friends. Sinners are crafted into saints. Vandals are fashioned into family. We see those who are hated becoming those treasured. Even the dead are finding life. For God so ferociously loves this world that he hates sin ferociously. Right? I'm going to park this car here in just a minute, but holy war also does one other thing. It foreshadows a last judgment where evil and sin will be destroyed completely. All that language in the Old Testament of ox and camel and everything, everything destroyed, that's pointing to a total and complete destruction later. There is a judgment to come. And Jesus will enter the scene, not dressed like Mordecai is, with robes and crowns and such like that, but he's going to have a blood-soaked robe. It's going to be on a white horse with a sharp sword to strike down the nations. I'm getting this out of Revelation. I'm going to read it to you, Revelation 19. It's a great passage, really, especially if you want to see what Jesus looks like when he comes back for his family. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, his holy war is not obsolete for everybody. If you have deep affections for Jesus, you belong to him and he belongs to you. You love him and you are loved. There is no holy war for you. But hear me clearly, if Christ is not the center of your affections, if Jesus is not preeminent in your life, and you are not in Christ, there is still a holy war that remains and God does destroy all evil. Destroys all evil. Listen, I know, I know, I know, I know. You did not come here to hear a fire and brimstone sermon. And I've never really been accused of preaching that, right, very often. I love you too much to give you five steps to your best life now. That's not going to stop a holy war. Here's the good news. We have someone better than Esther in our story, someone who put their personal interest aside as well as their safety, as well as their glory, as well as their dignity, as well as their honor, and even their life itself to plead our case before God who is a greater and mightier king. That blood on Jesus' robe, that's his blood before it's anyone else's. It's his blood first. Yeah, he's a warrior. He's also a redeemer and a rescuer. And because Jesus reverses this edict for his people, 
sorrow and pain will be forgotten. This means that there will be a day where you won't remember what it felt like to have pain. Sorrow will be at the farthest reaches of your memory. You'll have to dig to think about what it felt like. Fasting makes room for feasting. Light replaces this thing that you used to call darkness. This edict that I'm talking about will not be reversed. Your seat at the table will never be taken. It's there forever. Go ahead and stand with me. Listen, if you love Jesus, you are a Christian here today, there is room for you to repent in this, right? Where have you been light in your battle with your own sin? Where have you been careless with it? Careless with your own miniature holy war of sorts, right? Where have you hated God for hating sin? In all honesty. Where have you told partial gospels? Where have you split God into two pieces? How have you done that? Listen, if you're, if you're here and maybe you're a skeptic or you're a searcher, you don't love Jesus, maybe you have questions, and you should have questions. That's good that you do. Don't lose this day. Don't lose this moment. Don't miss what God is doing. In a moment when the music is going and the lights come down, you will see people kind of scurry into the back as individuals or as families. They're taking communion together and then they come back to their seat, right? Even that communion where they take that little piece of bread and they dip it in the juice and then they eat it, that's done in remembrance of what God has done. It's done in remembrance of that moment where God shows all of humanity his deepest love and his deepest wrath at the same time. That's what he's showing. Perfect justice. Perfect justice and perfect love. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being sweet to us and for being kind and for being gentle and for being thoughtful and for being considerate, for being patient, very, very patient, slow to destroy, graceful, forgiving, merciful, joyful over us, tender towards us. We thank you. We thank you for for being pure justice and demanding justice. And we thank you that there will be a day where all wrongs will be made right and we will see justice with our own eyes. And we do thank you for punishment, that it was delivered on another so it won't be delivered on us, that your punishment is poured out in its deepest and most complete way, that I would be brought into a family, that your family would be close to you forever, that there would be a seat at that table, Lord, I thank you that because of what you have done, not just to pour out wrath, but then to receive wrath on yourself, Lord, that what that does is it grafts me and millions of others into a family we really don't have any business being grafted into. And Lord, we just ask that as we worship and as we consider hard passages like this, that as missionaries to this city, Lord, that you would give us a fluency and a heart to let people be honest around us to let people struggle with passages like this. And maybe even be open and honest with our struggle with them as well, but ending in the place of how you show the deepest love and the deepest hatred for sin at the very same moment, how we do understand that, and how they understand it as well. Lord, minister and pastor our hearts today, especially where we resist you. Help us see that you have no character flaws. No character flaws. Help us see that you don't have two personalities. 
but you are beautiful. We love you, Father, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.